Maidol Nalamgar, Afrabeth Ochlai Mehennin, Afin y Hainehedir. Welcome to Con Langery, a podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me is my lovely co-host, Bianca Richards. Hello. And the indispensable William Annis. Hello. Uh, so, how have you guys been doing today? Just dandy. <laughs> that sounds like a lie. It might be. We're recording this on an unusual day because I decided I wanted to watch the Super Bowl. Ooh, yes. <laughs> the game was pretty interesting. The The halftime show was weird. I thought that's what the halftime show was for. <laughs> well, it was Madonna. Uh-huh. And it could have been China Miaville. Well... It could have been, but it wasn't. I don't know. I just like didn't recognize half of her guests. And <laughs> the one time I ever watched the Super Bowl um, was the famous one involving the wardrobe malfunction. Mm-hmm. And I was so amused by the whole fallout from the horrible thing, the whole thing, that I, I could never stand to watch the thing again. I watched that. Super Bowl in a parsonage. Uh, excellent. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it's just a bonus. It's, like, a, it's a youth group party, so. <laughs> the ads this year were not, or were, were crap too, and they had a bunch of local ads, which usually they don't have any local ads, I don't huh, think. Huh. Well, George, now that you are on the board of the Language Creation Society, maybe you guys should buy an ad. We don't have millions of dollars. Okay. So. You're going to have to have a big sale or something. You'll just have to put it on like reruns of Star Trek then. William, <laughs> William is mentioning something that uh, happened to me all over the weekend as well as I got elected to the board of directors of the Language Creation Society, so... Woohoo! Um, I'm, I'm going to say right now, this is, that's not going to affect the podcast. We're, we never were, and we will not be any kind of like mouthpiece for them. We're our own thing. But anyway... Hopefully our hosting will be secured. And all it is is I'll be a little bit more in the loop there... But then I'll still have to remember what stuff I can't tell people because of the NDA. Yeah, the joys of NDAs. Uh, I can, I can, I can tell people. Uh, look out for announcements. That's all. Yeah. I'm okay. Saying. Okay. Good. <laughs> um. So with all that stuff talked about, why don't we run into what our main topic is today? And this is kind of a big one. Um, so we did do a podcast at one point on word creation. 
but it was sort of a general thing, and we talked about some things that were sort of outside of linguistics, actual linguistics, and more about, like, tools you can use and such, and creative techniques. Today, we're going to figure in something that will help you with the word creation thing, and that is derivational morphology. That is morphology that helps you to derive another lexeme from an existing lexeme. And, William, you have uh, more than a page of notes on this, so you take it away. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Having the, the extra week to think about things and add notes. Um, obviously, there's no way at all we can cover everything um, and we can. It would be very boring to just sit here and do a list of derivational derivational morphemes we've seen in the past. All the derivational morphemes that we've loved and known and mourned when they died. We can't do that. So my focus for the notes was to f- sort of go over some big picture stuff and talk about mostly things we can do to make these systems a little bit more natural perhaps than we might do mm-hmm. otherwise if we don't think about it um, once again Gary Shannon comes to our rescue in that he has a web page with a huge list of different derivational functions things like um, just you know things that turn verbs to verbs, verbs to nouns nouns to verbs, all of these things, adverbs all of these things that we're used to he has a gigantic list of every conceivable possibility um, I say every conceivable. There's probably a few on there that exist in natural languages that aren't on his list, but it's still an awfully good starting point. Yeah, it's definitely... It's basically a bunch of different... A lot of it seems to be what words are likely to be related to each other, which is another important thing to be looking at. So. Right, right. Um and for beginners, I would actually recommend taking some time and looking at Esperanto's derivational system, but for God's sake, don't imitate it. But it's useful to think about some of these subtleties that get masked in English. For example, in English, we have the word stupidity, mm-hmm. a, word, a word I very much enjoy. In Esperanto, there are two words for stupidity, at least, stultezzo and stultajo. And they make a very useful distinction. Stultezzo is the quality of being stupid, whereas stultajo is a particular instance or example of stupidity. In English, most of the time, we don't distinguish those. We just use stupidity to cover both of them. So this is another example where, in coming up with our dictionaries for our invented languages, we allow our native language to smuggle in lexical boundaries that maybe we don't intend to do. Yeah, and that's that's sort of a different topic, but it's important to do, to think of when you're deriving words is to derive words from different sources than English does and also to to, to keep a bre- to keep uh, the sort of the semantic fields in mind, make sure that you're not just relaxing. Yep. yep. Um what I had so What's the most unnatural thing about Esperanto? The the thing that I hear about it is, is it's kind of Lego block like in that you know mm-hmm. it's, you stick this together and when it's stuck together you know what that will mean, right? Yep. Okay. It's completely regular and completely 
all happening at, at, at once, so to speak. So each root in Esperanto has a fundamental form. It's noun-like or verb-like or adjective-like. And once you know that and the root, you can just derive away. And that's sort of the point is it lets you generate quick vocabulary quickly with less memorization. I mean, that's the point of the language, so that makes sense. But in a natural language, you tend to have derivational elements that are not perfectly predictable. Mm-hmm. So like the stupidity example in English, we use to describe both a quality and an example or an instance of a quality, which is a pretty natural um, confusion to make, but maybe your language doesn't need to. Um, and in... Esperanto, you can just keep piling those suffixes up. Yeah, and and piling stuff on, I mean, to some extent you can do it, but I think too many uh, derivational affixes is not a very natural thing to have. One thing I think is sometimes you might have, for some reason or another, maybe the word is derived and then it drifts semantically, uh, such as with uh, decimate. Uh-huh. Um, or it just is not what you expect for some reason or another. Like, um, you would think that inflammable means not flammable, but that's not what it means. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and that brings up the other issue, which is um, in a natural language, your derivational elements have gone through the same process as the rest of your vocabulary. Some are archaic, some have died, but still appear in a few words. Some are productive in current language. So you expect to have, in a natural language, that have rich derivational morphology to have some derivational elements which are only used in a few places because they used to be productive and for whatever reason stopped being so. The Um, the ever... The increasingly misnamed Cranmorph, right? Right, right. Well, that's sort of a different thing. I have no idea what's what's going on there. I don't. I mean, was there a word "cran" that we used to have, but then disappeared? <laughs> that that is a curious one, isn't it? No, I, I uh, you know, I haven't the foggiest idea of the etymology of that word. But you're going to have different historical layers of derivational elements. You may have a primitive um, nominal, simple action nominalizer that over time stops being used, but you still have a bunch of vocabulary where things fossilized and you've got it. Um, and then you've got a new no, uh, action nominalizer um, that is fully productive. Mm-hmm. And that's like, there's likely to be a lot of that. And I think that's another good way to make a language naturalistic in terms of vocabulary is to not have, okay, this is an action noun, so it ends in T, you know, to have multiple layers of that and think about that a little bit more. Uh, what makes me, uh, what interests me is that, and I, you can see this very clearly in English, um, you can have derivational morphemes get repurposed, even archaic ones being revived or whatever, or just like, Things being, uh, things being just coined, derivational morphemes just being coined because they were part of a word, even though they weren't even a separate morpheme at that point. Right, right. So one of my favorite examples for a borrowed word is we have utopia, uh-huh. which is supposed to be this wonderful, beautiful place, and the negative of that, of a horrible, horrible place, is dystopia. Yeah. Except that's a pun. 
Utopia is not e-utopia. It's utopia. It means no place. Right. It doesn't mean good place. But because the pronunciation sounds the same, utopia, utopia, e-utopia, utopia, um, we decided that the negative of that was not, it was dystopia. And that's a deliberate pun, by the way. It was coined... I don't remember who coined it, but it was some work of literature, and the guy deliberately said, coined the, the term as a pun that could mean good place or no place. Um, that doesn't make sense. The book is too old. Really? Yeah. It was written in Latin. <laughs> so that seems unlikely to me. Really? Yeah. I thought that... No. Well, I thought that was at the... So wait... Could dystopia then be bad place slash everywhere? No, no. No, no, dystopia, no. Dystopia, the dis just means bad or negative. Right. That's no fun. I preferred it the other way. <laughs> it just happens that uh, the U spe- spelled with just a U would mean uh, no nowhere. Right. Yeah, I know. Anyway, so yes, it was written in Latin in 1516, so I, I think that the dystopia came much later. And we don't need to get obs- obsessed with this, but the point is, your elements can be reanalyzed by speakers. Yeah. Um, so in a, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about diminutives, and there, one of the diminutive endings in Greek, um, of which it has very many, one or two of them came from reanalyzing how a word was put together. That happens all the time. Okay. Um, so that's that. We can have multiple kinds of derivational elements, some more productive than others, reflecting different stages in the language. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, um, different kinds of affixes, derivational elements, might cause different kinds of changes in your stem beyond obvious morphophonology. Right? If you know, you got your word ends in a voiced consonant and the suffix is S-I, then you might have a devoicing going on. But other things might happen. In the Wakashian languages of the Pacific Northwest, um, like uh, Maka, for example, the stem, first syllable, has like a dozen possibilities for vowel ablaut and reduplication or some combination that are triggered by the different derivational suffixes. What's most interesting to me about those is that particular affixes can pile up and your suffix at the end can still cause a trigger at the root way at the other end of the word. Huh. So, <clears throat> spooky action at a distance for derivational morphology. So, that's one thing that can happen. Um, a little bit closer to home for most of us, uh, Proto-Indo-European can have some very strange ablaut patterns in grammar and derivational elements. So one of my favorites is, so a participle is a kind of a way of making an adjective out of a verb. And in the earliest stage of Homeric Greek, so ancient, ancient Greek, no longer active, but there are traces of it, masculine and neuter perfect participles take a um, zero-grade stem, and feminine participles take an E-grade stem. And what that means is the spelling looks different for your participles. They are pronounced differently. 
the stem part, not, not just the ending, which was also different. So that's something also to think about. Your derivational system might cause changes to the stem beyond just whatever's happening at that boundary where the morphemes run into each other. This, the, the um, oblaut and other sort of stem changes deriving from derivation, and just derivation in, uh, itself after getting run through a meat grinder of sound changes can cause some interesting things in historical linguistics if you go the diachronic route, because, like, you can, when you look at um, Indo-European, if you look just at English, there's a, like, there's a whole uh, blog that I follow called Bradshaw of the Future, and he traces, he'll take two uh, English words and show how they're both from the same usually the same Proto-Indo-European root, but they look completely different. My, they may have taken roots from the, through different languages. That's one. Yeah, that, that's the first question I was going to ask. How many of them got filtered through French first? That's, that, yeah, that's <laughs> one thing, that they get filtered through different languages. But sometimes the, it was two things that in uh, a word that gained two forms very early on and such... And if you just look at a lot of uh, etymologies and stuff, you can um, you can find some weird things like that where this word is related to this word, but there was some derivational thing that happened way in the past and then got completely obliterated on the way. Yep. Um, let me think. Uh, sort of the rest of my notes are a little bit more focused talking about some specific things that I saw that were interesting. Do we want do we have any more general stuff we want to talk about? Um I don't know. Bianca, do you have any just random thoughts about derivation? Mm, not really. I think no, we pretty much covered everything. I was thinking maybe in English where you can add these affixes and then it changes the stress, which then changes the vowel, which then I'm sure in a couple hundred years will be really annoying to people. Oh, yeah, English is a great example because of, of the, the, the mystifying and <laughs> the, fantas- the, the fantastic idea of stress timing versus syllable timing. Whatever, yeah, we have the whole collapse of, of vowels upstream. It's a similar idea, another way to make changes happen. And I'm trying to remember, I think, um, uh, what was it called? What's the dissertation that Mark Okrand did? I forgot the language. Mutsun. Mutsun had this as well, where derivational elements would cause a, a stress shift and horrible things would happen to vowel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another right, thing... So- um, I don't think a lot. This matters to a lot of con languages because almost everybody uses a phonemic writing system. But mm-hmm. different writing systems can have different things to can do different things to derivations. Like um, so, in English, like a lot of foreign names are just loaned in, you know, particularly place names and language names. Uh, Chinese has the weird thing that. It does accept phonetic loans, but phonetic loans sometimes just get truncated to one character because they like one character means one thing. Like, uh, Mei Li Jia became Mei. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's that's less actual der- derivational morphology and, and more 
I don't know, abbreviation and such, but... Well, you know, it's another example of a, a word being shorn of extra bits in the historical process. Mm-hmm. All right, so the first thing that I sort of noticed patterns in, and this is not just for, you know, the week and a half leading up to the show, but diminutives and augmentatives are kind of funky. Really? Yeah. So in, in, it's not obvious to me why it should be saying that something is small should be equally usable as a sign of affection. Because it's cute. Really? Yeah, and, and, yeah. Uh, well, it gets associated with, like, kids and such, and puppies and kittens and such. And puppies and kittens, yeah. Okay, okay. Although at the same time, you know, never mind. I don't know. It's Just not, wondering. It's not necessarily an obvious, um, an obvious line of logic. I, I'll agree with you, but it seems to happen a lot. It does happen a lot, so that's worth mentioning. I don't know it, if I could say why it feels right, but it feels right. Because you speak <laughs> Spanish. No. It could be other things. It could be other things. Okay. Um, and then, as I've mentioned in the past, an interesting sort of weirdness with Nahuatl in both classical and the modern language is the diminutive is also used to mark respect. Now, that is that curious one. to me. Which means that you have multiple diminutives in Nahuatl, some which are much more specifically, this thing is small, and others which are more, I'm speaking respectfully about family members. Ah, I see. Maybe it just presents a closeness. Yeah, I mean, we can theorize about that, and that's certainly one idea, that the idea that this person was close to you. Eh, right. Um, so, and there are, even though it's very common for these to get used for... Things and for augmentative, you know, to indicate something bad or alarming. Um, in some languages, they're much more purely lexical, you know, hut, house, mansion. Well, polite language can, can uh, be very weird in some ways. And even historically and, and derivationally, like, you know, Spanish, usted derives from vuestra merced, your mercy. And right, pretending got, everyone's royalty. Yeah, you just kind of scrunched it together. Yeah. And I don't know. And um, pronouns are usually not derived, but they get weird things like that. Like, that one happens to be derived. But Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that's probably pretty obvious about diminutives is that they get bleached of meaning quickly. In languages that use them a lot, their proper sense just gets evaporated over time. So that by the time you get to post-classical ancient Greek, it's not uncommon to see words with two or three different diminutive suffixes all piling up on the same word. (laughs) (laughs) So my favorite is, by the time you get to the New Testament, a booklet is Biblaridion. So we had Biblos... Biblion, Biblarion, Biblaridion. So that's ultimately three things. Um, And that's not terribly uncommon. So, um, in other words, like the the diminutives, when they're used a lot, then some words, they just kind of become part of the lexeme 
right. rather than a separate morpheme. Right, right. So, in yeah, in Greek, you can either, for child, you can either say pais or you can say paideum. Uh-huh. In ancient Greek, and I mean, and they're both quite common, very early in the language. So, yeah, they they tend to just come to mean their normal thing pretty quickly. I see. All right, so that's that. <clears throat> um, then I have a bunch of notes here about nominalization. So, one thing I haven't talked about really is uh, verb derivations, and those can be interesting. A lot of people tend to think about transitivity changing operations as the same in the same way as they think about derivational elements, and, and that's not obviously crazy, um, but in my opinion, that almost deserves its own show. <laughs> would make, we should invite David Peterson on for that. He said that he likes transitivity change. Valency changing operations make him happy. So, Really? Yeah. Verb, verb derivation can be really weird in general. It can be. It can be. I'm thinking of Chinese verb objects right now. Which I won't go into. Cause it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but go more more nominalization. What's nominalization. So nominalization, of course, is the process of turning something into a noun. So I'm going to be focused on mostly turning verbs into nouns. And there are three really biggies that you're going to have. You're going to have an agent noun, doer. Mm-hmm. You're going to have action noun, kind of like a gerund, doing. And you're going to have, for transitive verbs, at least an object noun, like sight, like sightseeing. You know, thing, the, the, the thing that represents the typical or prototypical object um, of some action. Um, and then uh, tools seem to be pretty darn common as well. Tools related to another noun or verb. Action Nominalization is very, very often grammaticalized, where that becomes, your verb will be nominalized this way to become some sort of subordinate structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, in earliest Indo-European, that's all an infinitive is, is a particular kind of nominalization. Most of us are used to languages where you have an infinitive form of a verb. The Vedic's... What? Proto inter Anadu. It anadu'd me. I was using my infinitive as a straight noun. Oh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so wait ahead. a minute. So it's the the proto Indo the Indo European infinitive derives from a nominalizer, is what yeah. you're saying. It is a nominalizer, and in fact, in Vedic Sanskrit, is a complete mess because they hadn't fixed yet what the infinitive was going to be. Numerous kinds of nominalization could all be used. Sometimes, on the, sometimes the same verb might have three to five regularly occurring, quote-unquote, infinitives. That's funny. Right. So this is just the point I'm making here is you don't have to have, I mean, you know, just more things to think about to make your language even harder for you to learn. Um, five infinitives. Sure. Why not? Um, okay. So moving on in this. So... George is lost. Yes, George. I'm just, I, I was just like, let's let's move along here. Okay. All right. Um, it sometimes happens in languages that you get nominalization patterns to create words, uh, nouns of place, like uh-huh. like museum is from museon. You know, a place of the muses. 
Um, I call my library the Nerdarium. <laughs> Dork face. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Dorkarium, whatever. Um, <laughs> it it seems not uncommon for the same derivational element to do double duty for deriving nouns of place and of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not, again, not obviously crazy, but, you know, something to think about that people well, might not no. have seen. Places you can go in your TARDIS. Right, right. Um, it's a very confusing element to me of classical Nahuatl because it uses this pervasively. Um, in more morphologically simple languages, nominalization may be more a product of syntax than morphology. And I'm thinking about highly isolating languages like Vietnamese or Chinese. Um, classical Chinese especially is w- – words are extremely flexible or at least they look extremely flexible in terms of word class. It might be a noun. It might be a verb. It all depends on how it's used. Now, in the case of classical Chinese, there's a reason to believe it looks like this because we're missing information. <laughs> that it might have been once been a little more – um, morphologically rich, they just didn't bother to write it down because everyone who knew the language could fill in the parts that they knew would need to be there. Yes, there's 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 a lot of things we just don't know in right. terms of Chinese. So. Right. Um, an, another example is Sumerian, which in its when Sumerian was being written by people who actually grew up speaking Sumerian, they left out all sorts of stuff. Wow. <laughs> and it was only it was only later when various Semitic peoples decided we're going to pray in this dead language that they started to fill things in. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, that, that's taking us a little off topic. But, right, so I just want to mention, we do have, though, modern Chinese and modern Vietnamese, which do seem to have a lot of flexibility. Um, and one of the papers I collected for today, and then George can include this in the show notes, is a an entire paper on nominalization in Thai and other languages of Southeast Asia. There's all sorts of interesting patterns for if you are going to make a more isolating language, you still have tools to nominalize. Um, And there are some patterns there you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I wanted to end with, because I've been studying Nahuatl, I'm going to give you the crazy, crazy, crazy agent noun nominalization dance. So, Almost anything except certain grammatical particles in Nahuatl can be a predicate and take conjugation prefixes. Okay. Including pronouns. It is I, right? Can take a subject conjugation prefix. Many things that I want, as an native speaker of English, want to think of as nouns and adjectives are, in fact, just verb phrases. This, I think I have heard, is that Nahuatl kind of has just verbs. It has verbs, right. It I'm not, have, it doesn't yeah, have now. That's, really. that's a somewhat radical theory I'm not entirely prepared to embrace, but that's certainly an idea. Okay. So, one of my favorite words, because I recently read a story using it, de guani, means it customarily eats people, is typically used as an adjective-like thing that means savage. <laughs> so that ni suffix is the habitual marker another great word which I just love klatoani which means he or she customarily says things means ruler 
<laughs> okay. And you can do this, and it's very, very productive. You can... So, Should be the um, word from mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she customizes yeah, That's good. I like that. Um, here's the problem. This particular form ending in knee can't be possessed or turned into a plural. So what do you do if you want to possess it or turn it into a plural? Is you switch the nominalization strategy so that the plural of tlatoani is tlatoke. Okay. And if it needs to be possessed, you have yet further dancing comes on. And let's see if I can pronounce this properly the first time. Um, Totlatokau means our person who customarily jabbers. <laughs> our ruler. <laughs> so, in addition to switching nominalization entirely to possess it, um, you have additional changes to morphology to say, oh, this particular nominalization takes a slightly different form when it is possessed. <laughs> so that's I, honestly the craziest example of morphological variation in a simple process like making something plural or possessed I've ever seen, right? One kind of nominalization for an unpossessed singular, a different kind of nominalization for some plurals and all possessed nouns. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that. That's that's kind of interesting. Yeah. That's not exactly the word um, I used when I got to that chapter in my textbook, but yes. <laughs> does it hurt your brain, William? It does. It, it does. I'm not used to being flabbergasted. It's just more to learn. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like it's difficult or weird. It's just the effort of getting it burned into my brain. It's extra memorization. It's right. just like I have to memorize... Every uh, Chinese word I learned twice because I have to memorize the characters. Right, right. In this case, it's so weird that it's impossible to forget. (laughs) (laughs) But you know you're going to run into – but that does not make it easier to read fluently um, in the language. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that that was the last of of the long list of crazy things I wanted to mention. Yeah. um, I don't know. Bianca, do you have any – Anything crazier than that that you've thought of? I can't think of. Uh, not at this moment. I've actually been very slight on my morphology, which is why I asked for us to do this, so I could steal ideas of craziness. Uh But unfortunately, I haven't thought of anything crazier than that as of yet. (laughs) Yeah. News pending. See, unfortunately, see, my, my, my languages I've had contact with most are... Spanish and Chinese, which are fairly boring, at least compared to the stuff that you you pulled out for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chinese has a lot of weird things going on derivationally, but the the fact that it's most of the derivation is just straight up compounding, right? And with a few uh, prefixes and suffixes is just kind of you know. Um, I think we've talked enough about this topic. I think definitely this is something we have a lot of topics that we say go and research yourself after we talk about it, and this is one of them because, as William said at the front, it's not possible for us to be exhaustive in an hour-long episode. It would take, you know, we we could spend like nine hours lecturing you on 
different derivational strategies, but you would not like it. So you would, go it would and look boring. up stuff yourself, read papers and and uh, troll Wikipedia and find uh, find look at grammars of different languages. Yeah. Um, in addition to Gary Shannon's giant list, I've also included again a link to um, Rick Morneau's lexical semantics lexical semantics yeah. document um, because he has because of what he's trying to do is create a um, machine translation interlanguage. He has all sorts of interesting strategies for exactly these processes, um, and it might provide some insight. Um, to look at that as well, even though it's not really just a document on derivational stuff, it, it might have a lot you find interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has it has a lot to do with also like semantic fields and such. But right, right. Um, and everything you could ever possibly want to know about verb valency and transitivity. Uh, so, with all that said, why don't we move on to our featured conlang today? which is proto-dathos. Now, William told William sort of insisted that we jump on the proto-dathos quickly because the, although this is kind this is labeled in red on every page as a draft copy of the grammar, the cram, the grammar has disappeared before and we were worried that it could disappear again. So if the the link is broken, I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully it will not be broken, and you'll be able to see what we're talking about. So, Proto Dathos. It was created by Nikolai Echternach Taylor. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and let's see. The document is very pretty. Yes. Um, perhaps a little excessively pretty in one or two places. Um. What's interesting to me about how it's presented is the in-world and out-world, or the internal and external history of the language, mm-hmm. are not well separated. They're, they're mixed together in ways that I find a little disorienting. So, from a literary standpoint, it can be confusing reading. Well, yeah, and the very first thing in here is he, he has a disclaimer saying this is all fictional. And then everything else in it seems to be presented in universe, but or there's or he has the first whole section is it starts with a disclaimer and it's talking about the external stuff, and then it seems like once he gets into the grammar itself, everything is presented in universe. But I think um, there's a, a a sort of a literary issue that you get into when you try to present a grammar in universe in that you kind of have to straddle the line between using all this in universe stuff and then using your standard linguistics terms depending on the culture some cult- you might have a modern culture that is hip to all the linguistic uh, knowledge that we have, and you just can say we're just we're just translate translating Gorbnitz to uh, nominative, <laughs> but um, <laughs> there is no word Gorbnitz in this. But Gorbnitz, okay. 
but uh, it depends on the. I just think it depends on the culture whether how well you can present things that way. I I sort of did it halfway with Ayurio, so I can see. I know kind of how disjointed that can. This sort of weird that can end up being. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind being a little confused and disoriented while reading things, but I just thought it was a little surprising. Um, What was I going to say? It has uh, quite, quite the sound inventory. (laughs) Uh That's one way of putting it. Yes, it has a lot of it. And it's very well thought out, actually, phonology, even, even if it looks somewhat tension sinky or somewhat ooh co-articulated tp yep and 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 kp and kp plus labialization yeah but um like the i looked at the tp one i've only ever heard of on like you know some three little islands out in the middle of the pacific somewhere yeah That's and a he has weird that co-articulation and Retroflex and palatal plosive, and he has labialization everywhere. And well, if you're going to have labialization, it should go everywhere or in lots of places. That's true. So um, I'm, I'm okay with that. He has both uh, sh and sh, so both a an alveolar and a retroflex uh, fricative. No, uh, both a post alveolar. Yeah, post-alveolar and a retroflex, which seem kind of hard to distinguish to me, but I can distinguish them. So. The Chinese guy That's... says this? No, it's... Sha? No, no. Sha. Um, no, but Chinese doesn't have that distinct... It doesn't have post-alveolar. It has a, what's called blade palatal or yeah, a bunch yeah, of yeah, different yeah. things. It's, um, just a, it just takes a little training. I was going to say, I had no problem with it. That was not my hardest part of taking Sanskrit, but okay. Okay, um, so at least it's it's possible. Um, what I was looking at, and I've been trying to get around to saying, is he has a, a chart of vowel allophony that's very interesting. So he has, a, he has, he's listing these three vowels, and I'm not sure, if, I don't know if these... Does he have a, just a list of his vowels anywhere? That's them. Yeah, that's, that's it. So he actually like only has three system. vowels, and not in a a uh, form that you would expect. But there's a bunch of allophony depending on certain features that are, I guess, in... I'm trying to... It has to do with the consonants around them. Yeah, I, th- I, th- yeah. I was thinking it was doing it with the consonants. Is it the preceding consonant or something? Oh, it, it, it's actually preceding and following. It it's, goes in both directions, I guess. They must get into a fight. <laughs> I bet you the epiglottal wins every time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, it says, that is, if a vowel is bordered by palatalization and roticization... Only one quality appears to affect a vowel. It'd be nice to tell us which one it was. But, yeah, but he doesn't <laughs> tell us what the rules are for which one wins out. Maybe it's just an order that they are. Who knows? Uh, Mystery the of the ages. The vowel quality has no preference on whether or not the consonant is coda or the onset. 
So, I don't know. It's confusing. Um, yeah. This this may be one of these things that he has to flush out a little bit more in order to make it understandable. Again, this is a draft copy, so he may not be completely done with all these descriptions. Um, He's got a nice sun tea section. Yes. And phototactic stuff, which is nice. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, and even says something about prosody. Um, it's not very complicated. I mean, the, the conceit, conceit is conceit, whatever. The model here is that this is a proto-language. So not only are we being given a conlang, we're being a conlang that is a proto-lang for another lang. So there yeah. might be details missing. But it's... And you can get away with vagueness when you do things proto-lang. like that. Yeah. He's ta- done a lot of work on this language that is presumably to um, facilitate creating another language. So, yeah. well, kind of interesting. People do these things. Um, let's see. I like very... Oh, can we move on to morphology? Yes, definitely. I like that he's got multiple kinds of reduplication. Yeah, I just I just got down to here and I see reduplication... Reduplication of root, reduplication of classifier, and it's not even just straight reduplication. He reduplicates a particular particular parts of the syllable, which is interesting. Oh, I always like. So that reminds me from whatever last episode we did. I don't remember an episode before we were talking about the ordering of rules, and I was going through the reduplication I have in my shoe elf language and decided that I'd have the reduplication for the plural happen before the case marking for some of the cases and after the case marking for other cases. So it'll be all sorts of fun. Oh, good. Oh, wow. Is there like a a historical reason for that? Like certain cases came after pluralization started? Nope. I'm not that in-depth. I just thought it (laughs) sounded like a fun way to do things. That's interesting. Anyway, getting back to Proto-Dathos. Yes. Right. Um, so it's used to form the plural. Reduplication forms the plural of some nouns, a very common use of reduplication. Um, and in verbs, it creates as something he's calling the retrospective. So that's nifty. It seems so interesting that, I don't know, it always seems interesting to me that reduplication is so common for for pluralization, just because it makes so much sense to reduplicate for plural for pluralization, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. It's like, you know, why do we have it, to say dogs? Why can't we say dog-dog? <laughs> I like we the English speaking, plural. If we were speaking Indonesian, we would say dog-dog. <laughs> dog. I like the English plural. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but I don't mind the reduplicated plural either. Yeah, it's, it's an obvious use of that. Um, I was always, you know, you start off with that and it makes sense, and you get to Proto-Indo-European, and they use reduplication to make statives, what later became the perfect tense. Perfect, yes. Oh, that makes sense as well. Really? What? Yeah. How? I would think of it more to make a habitual or a, or an active... No, because if you're thinking about it while you're doing it, it just makes sense. Okay. I mean, it made sense, obviously, to some group of people because that's what they did. But it just was... Just because I inherently know Proto-Indo-European and you don't. 
<laughs> really, see, you reincarnated from a speaker. That's why you accidentally borrow features from. Yes, that's why the diminutive makes sense, and uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know. <laughs> okay. Yes. So the protodathos noun really only has a nominative and an oblique. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of fun complications that come with the oblique. Is that a syllabic angma? Yes, look at that. Oh. So I this is even... something that's characteristic of all of protodathos is we need to mark the oblique. There are five ways to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need to make a perfective. There are, you know, three ways to do that. So that's that's really nice, and that dovetails nicely with our topic earlier, which is you don't have to do all of this the same way. Now, that actually makes sense. If they're only going to have a nominative and oblique, then the oblique probably collapsed from five different things. Yeah, sure. and all of his articles, um, his indefinite articles are suffixes. And they, it had they they distinguish number and MC or or do they just yeah, but they all have like um and they distinguish number. I guess he has animate inanimate gender and um and of course um uh, well that's it. But each one of them has two forms for open syllables and closed syllables. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so I said there were five ways to form the oblique. There's actually six because you have a bunch of other ones just at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and some. they're restricted to different things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. One thing I don't understand is we have some nouns who may become plural. No, not plural. Maybe obliques by adding either the diminutive or the augmentative ending. And they're used this way when they, quote, will not cause a shift in meaning. So his example for using the augmentative is, how is this pronounced? Preh, lizard. I have no problem deriving a useful word by attaching an augmentative to the word lizard. Well, alligator. Sure. Or dragon. Komodo, Komodo, caiman, dinosaur, all sorts of possibilities. Anyway, so that to me seems an unlikely path of grammaticalization. Yeah, I suppose it, I hesitate to say it's impossible because we know that that will only lead to sadness. But <laughs> well, that's that's the, one the, of that. It could be one of your um, grammar is born hungry things where it. Yeah, like, well, maybe, maybe. But if I say it's impossible, then the anadu harpies will come and. Yeah, it's it's not. It's 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 possible. It just is, it, the logic of it escapes us. Mm-hmm. Bianca, um, does it make sense to you since everything's no. making sense today? <laughs> no, that one is not clicking. <laughs> well, it's not a it's not a proto Indo European. It's proto Dathus, not proto Indo European. Right. So I wasn't born speaking proto Dathus. Um, let's see here. His possess his possessive pronouns have both clitic and non clitic forms. That's nifty. Look at his indefinite pronouns. On page. Uh, well, just right after the possession premise. Page 15. Page 15. Uh, okay. There, um, I don't know. I, 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 it looks like the, he did a lot of work on making sure it was not a relax, which indefinite pronouns can end up kind of relaxing a lot of times. So sure. It's, it's and they are surprisingly regular. They are. <laughs> the, 
that every every one of the oblique forms ends in a T, doesn't it? And retroflex a ta. Or, or, yeah. Oh, ta, ta, yeah, the retroflex T. Mm. I just love sub- syllabic resonance. On page 16, for this is redder than that one, his rem, hmm, hmm. That means that one in the oblique case. I like that a lot. Anyway. He uses a lot of diacritics in his... Um, well, he has, yeah. he has a lot of sounds. Yeah, he kind of needs them, but uh-huh. it's just worth mentioning that he has a lot of them. Uh, let's see. He has an in- interrogative determiner. What's which would be like which? What? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess. Ah, interesting. Um, I think I use an adjective. Here. Right. So, um, moving on to page twenty-two, the personal agreement system of the verb is nifty because you've got primary and secondary, their prefixes, and they're asymmetrical. Oh yes, definitely. So another nice piece of non 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 perfect regularity. Um, with a, with a great big with a great big sun tea chart to cope with. Um, the effects of some of the prefixes. Uh-huh. Okay, he has just imperfective and perfective and retrospective aspects. Okay. Ooh, moods. He has indicative, subjunctive, and and horative. That's so not a real conlanger. He needs twelve. Moods? Yes. Not everybody needs a bunch of moods. I like a lot a bunch of moods, but Yeah, sorry. I'm asking. not a mood fan. Smart Alec. But he, um, this may be a section that he's not completely fleshed out, but he, he do, goes to the trouble of explaining a little bit about his moods, and he says subjunctive is mostly used in subordination. I think it's very important that you tell, at least, especially what the subjunctive does, because yeah, it subjunctive can do so many different things. All I know when I hear subjunctive is that it's going to be a crazy mess. <laughs> That's the rule. That's the only commonality. Um, off to page 26. The verb stems are another example of this just wonderful variation in possibilities. We've got suffixes, we've got infixes, we've got prefixes, we've got um, voicing changes. Um, we have one or two funky deletions that I don't understand. Um, oh. Reduplication, prenasalization. Wow. Yeah, he's just got... Now, they're not all doing the same thing, right? Some are creating imperfectives, some are creating perfectives from other yeah. forms. So it's not... Well, yeah, of course, but he has, like, one, two, three, four, five imperfectives, like three perfectives, couple yeah. different, a couple different ways to do retrospectives. So it's sort of like he's mixing and matching his strategies with different... Which is nifty. Yeah. Um, seems like you would need a 501 verbs book for this language. Yeah, this one I think will take a little more work. <laughs> um, um, aspect and. 501 obliques. <laughs> he has lots of voice things, which include um, what I would call applicatives. Yeah, it's, that's what I was thinking, is he has a bunch of. He basically threw in some uh, applicatives into his, and a causative into, and a reflexive, all into his voices. 
And he has something that he's calling an avalent, which drops all valency from the verb. It reduces the arguments to zero. Well, this is this is used for apparently weather. weather. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, I or just think- see, but then there's this craziness with the hortative. This generates a cohortative. So let's drink. Starts with an avalent onto which you smack the hortative. So that's kind of funky. So it's like, uh, well, I guess it's sort of either there is no no argument or all the arguments are. Um, Understood. I like using that with uh, weather because... Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of effort to go through for just weather. That's true. I think probably it's not it's not likely that something like that would apply only to weather. But it doesn't, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he's got a nice section on his nominaliz- on derivation, which really has nominalization... And that's it. He has headings for other chapters, but they don't exist yet. I mean, oh, no yeah. It's, it's hard working on derivation. It, it really is, because you have to just sit here and sit there and think of all these different things to do. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of creating vocabulary. <laughs> yeah. It's not, I'm not saying that it's not necessarily not fun, but it's just, it takes, takes a lot of thinking and a lot uh-huh. of work. Yeah, it's true. Well, my derivation morphology in Aereo sucks because I didn't spend any time on it. Um, and then we have an extremely sparse syntax section, which is the place I hope this language will get the most because there's just not much here. Yeah, it's getting. He has nice glosses, but. For sentences such as, I eat chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I eat uh, I wonder if you'll pick up pick up any of our Conlangry memes and what? Wouldn't that Buddhist be great people. to uh, to start seeing in languages? Is some of the the random memey things that we've said end up in the in examples of languages? <laughs> Except some of them are maybe not perfectly well formed. Anyway, do you have anything else to say about? Uh, <laughs> I don't think we have anything really. Um, I like it. It's nifty. Um, like I said, I would sort of like to see more syntax, but and it's beautifully presented. Lovely. It is. Minus mm-hmm. the whole. I would like it. He has his examples, and they go from the result to the whatever they came from. I would prefer it if they went from the original to the result. If he's ever listening to this and listens to me. Yeah. Bianca likes it that way. George and I are fine with it the way it is, but whatever. Um, yeah. Anything else? Um, uh, I, we didn't get very many emails recently, so I don't really have... I guess I'm, I'm kind of looking at our comments. Somebody is... Um, somebody is crying... Um, in a comment of, uh, on our uh, personal names episode and hates Bianca because they ended up making a language with very complex personal names. But, uh, <laughs> and Wait, why does that... Karsten Becker left a, a comment on the uh, Morphosyntactic Alignment um, episode and, with a link to a Tagalog reference grammar. 
Nice. Which yeah, nice will be very. Uh, um, what was going to say? So I just listened uh, yesterday to our Morphos and Tactic Alignment podcast, and we're much more coherent sounding than I thought we were when we recorded. <laughs> we are because when yeah. we because like I was expecting there to be a couple of posts like you know you guys I'm kind of a bit shaky that episode and no one did that and I was like. He must have done a good job editing us. Yeah, yeah, I felt least confident after that, but okay. Yeah, and some people have translated my story for for um, for the uh, practicum. Uh, the problem is, like, there's one in a comment, and I remember there was one in the Facebook group. Can you guys email that those to me so that I can have them all in one place when when I'm looking at it? This guy did it. In a comment, this guy named he did, Chris. He did it really quickly too. Yeah, he did it like the same day. Congratulations! There's, Later. I know it's very hard to gloss something that long. Um, but he he, but without glosses, I have basically no way to. <laughs> there is nothing we can say about what you've done if we don't know what you're doing. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know anything about what you did. So. Maybe some uh, some ex- explanation of like pull out certain sentences and give us glosses so that we can know some of the different strategies. I don't know. What do you guys so, think of my donkey beater story I wrote? Yeah, I was feeling sorry for that. I, I was having a little issue doing the actual phrase donkey beater <laughs> <laughs> because I hadn't got to that like kind of construction yet. But anyway, I decided I was going to translate it just because I needed something to translate. But I did it in my one language with all the cases, so it's not really going to be part of the practicum. But okay. it turned into a funky, fun story about actually it was – I think I just changed it to straight wife beater. Oh, okay. really? Okay. It fits. Yeah, but it, it fits. It's so not. this is going to replace um, the, <laughs> the sun and the west wind? The north wind of the sun. I wouldn't go quite that far. Has its own merits. <laughs> yes. So, I don't know. I just like the day that I post the 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 day that I wrote up these show notes. I'm just like, I need a story for people to use. So I let's just, do like, a story about a horrible a human being. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Ooh. I just yeah. Well, I I was just trying to find different ways ways to do different. Um, Levels of animacy and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. I don't know. Yes, it's it, he. He is a terrible human being, but he gets his comeuppance in the end. He does. <laughs> Not in my version. <laughs> you actually changed the story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think with all that, we can wrap up this episode. Um. Bianca, do you have any final words of wisdom? I do. One, because I actually thought of something. Two, because people are complaining that I never had wisdom. So my wisdom is, you know, we go over all these things. We say, it'll be nice if you had all this detail, all of the steps, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, don't expect it to happen overnight. And I'm guilty of this. I'm like, I want it to be nice now. You know, you're not going to recreate thousands of years of language in one day. Give it at least maybe a year, two years, you know. Oh, uh, wow. Patient. That's a, that's a, uh, a year or two. I'm like, 
Yeah. Maybe even, just for maybe your nouns. Even and then maybe a, another two years for your verbs. Mm. And, wow. you know, a lifetime for the rest of everything else. See, just I'm be not, patient. I, I don't know if I want to work on one language for that long. But, yeah. And definitely in order to get a language to even halfway decent, you need to spend a few months working on it very steadily. At uh, the very least. Yes, at the very least. And and some of the, the most complex, you know, very well-thought-out conlangs have been worked on for like 10 years, so... Yeah, some of the ones we've looked at have easily been worked on for a decade. And, you know, it just... It just depends on what level of granularity you want to work with. So, anyway, with that, uh, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Not after that, no. <laughs> that that stands all by itself. It does not need anything else. That's all my right. wisdom for the rest of the show. Thank yeah. you. Goodbye. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to say uh, work hard on it and happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Con Langery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Noel Device.